It was three days ago that many of us were here in this room. Uh, Only on Friday, it was draped in dark black cloth. We gathered in the sanctuary to reflect on the seven last words of Jesus spoken from the cross. Those seven phrases spoken that have a way of of jutting up on the landscape of history like a mountain in the desert. Seven words that Jesus left as markers for his people as he went on that final journey into the abyss of darkness and destruction that was the cross. Seven words. One Friday long ago. But it's not Friday anymore. And as I was thinking about this morning... I tried to think what would be the one word that we could bring, that could capture up everything that Resurrection Sunday is about. What's the one word that can express our response to the message of Easter, the stunning proclamation of the resurrection? And I'm going to give you my word in just a minute. But before I do that, I want to take you on a little bit of a journey. And it's a, it's a journey back in time. I want you to imagine, if you will, being around 2,000 years ago when this man, Jesus, came to your village and you heard him for the first time. And he, he taught like nobody had ever taught the things that he said. And he, he lived like nobody had ever lived, the way that he cared for people. Nobody loved the way that he did. And so you decided that there was just something about him that was worth risking it. And you became one of his followers. And you left behind your home and your family and your work. And people said you were crazy. But you were convinced that somehow this man got it. He got it in a way that no other human being before him ever had. And the community that he was forming around him were going to change the world. You were convinced of it. And for a while, there was this amazing adventure. Day after day, you were in the presence of of miraculous things. Until that one day... When you made your way into Jerusalem with great pageantry, palm branches waving and people throwing their cloaks on the road, and it felt for everyone looking on like this was the coronation day for a new king. At last, this miracle-working wonder of a man was coming to the capital city to take his throne, to do it with power. People were thrilled. The crowds went wild for him. But he didn't come in power. And it turns out he didn't want to be that kind of king at all. And when word got out, things began to change really quickly for Jesus. And by Friday, the day that ironically we call Good Friday, by Friday this man that you had given up everything to follow was dead. And not just dead, but crucified dead. A death that was not only torturous, but shameful, reserved for the lowest of the low. This is the bleakest and darkest of all human beings. He died. His movement died. It all failed. And that meant that you, you were a failure. You were swept up in it. And now your life, too, was marked by failure. On a Friday, in darkness and in shadows, there you are off in the distance in despair. Early in the morning, Sunday, you make your way to the tomb, probably because you have nowhere else to go. In the middle of grief, you're just kind of hobbling your way around, trying to figure out what to do next. But then the word starts to go out. It's all very confusing at first. 
The tomb is empty. The stone that had been in front of it, massive, is rolled away. The Romans who were appointed to guard it, they're gone. Nowhere to be found. The eyewitness reports begin to circulate that that there was an angel there, a messenger from God who, who gave the first news that Jesus was not there anymore and that somehow he was alive. And so you go and you see for yourself. News begins to spread and, and people ge- begin to speak the, the good news. And that's a dangerous thing to do. The last person that spoke about Jesus and spoke about the kingdom was Jesus himself. And, well, he died for it. It's risky, but... People begin talking about it. After all, they killed Jesus and he's doing just fine. So maybe it was worth the risk. And so you start letting the news escape that hate is out and love is in. And the crucified carpenter from Nazareth is now master of the universe. And Jesus is alive. What do you think? Given that whole backdrop of experience would be the first word out of your mouth if that was your experience on Sunday morning. There's an ancient tradition, well rehearsed. In fact, you already did it this morning. Well rehearsed and you did great. Somebody at the front of a large audience of people, they would cry out, Jesus Christ is risen. And in thunderous response, people would say back, Right, let's try that thunderously. Christ is risen. There we go. That wasn't what happened on Easter morning. I mean, that's just, that's too polished. It's too prepared. The sentiment is beautiful, but, but I don't think that on that Sunday morning, when they first heard the message that Jesus, this guy that you knew, this man that you followed, this carpenter, this rabbi that you loved, is risen from the dead. I'm not sure that, that anything that eloquent would be what escaped your lips. But try this. Maybe the word for Easter is just this. Wow. Just wow. I mean, wow is, is the word that we use when something happens that turns our life upside down. We didn't see it coming. We don't quite know how to take it all in. Wow. It's that expression of, of wonder and amazement. You're awestruck. It's kind of interesting. According to Oxford, anyway, every language has its own version of the word wow. And if somebody doesn't say wow in a moment of shock, chances are they're more likely to say, mon Dieu, my God, or oh my God. Because in those moments, we recognize that what's happening in our world is bigger than us. And it usually involves someone bigger than us. Reality is filled with wows, isn't it? Our family are great consumers of all those BBC nature documentaries, the blue planet, the oceans, planet Earth, you know the ones. The universe is marked by wow. Whether it's the vastness of, of the cosmos or the intricacy and the beauty of the subatomic world or the, just the kaleidoscopic color of nature itself, the universe is filled with wow. And history is peppered with wow moments. It was that moment when a couple of brothers out in Kitty Hawk, Maine, the Wright brothers, first climbed into a machine and, and suddenly human beings could fly. Just a few decades later, a man, Neil Armstrong, climbs out of his pod 
and takes the first step on the surface of the moon. And the world watched on TV. Wow, there's a man on the moon. Just two years before that, the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. (laughs) Probably the greater miracle, proof that there is a God and that God is infinitely good. (laughs) One of those wow moments. So they're in the universe and they're in history, but not just there. Your life is filled with wow moments. I mean, birth, what a mystery. For our new moms and our soon-to-be moms, it never ceases to be. The Great Wall of China, a couple of our intrepid young explorers just get back from walking on the Great Wall. It's a wow moment, isn't it? You get your driver's license for the first time, and, and suddenly you can drive on your own. Wow. I met a girl, a maritime girl. I proposed, and she said yes, and we were married. Twenty-five years later, I still get to wake up next to her every day. Wow. (laughs) Every life has those wow moments, and the universe is built on them. But this morning, we get to gather in the in the shadow of that one moment that makes all the others pale in comparison. And so what I'd like to do, just for the few minutes that we have, is walk you through three great truths about this weekend, about the resurrection of Jesus. And they're really simple. If you turn to the back page of your order of service, you'll find something there that says sermon notes. It's blank because I was lazy this week. No, we were, we were kind of busy this week. But if you want to jot them down, here they are. Three great truths about this weekend. Here's the first. The resurrection actually happened in history. You might want to write that down. It sounds like a ludicrous thing to say. It's so important to say. The resurrection actually happened in history. Here's the second one. The resurrection changed everything. Lots of things happened in history. This one changed the world. And here's the third one. The resurrection is deeply personal. It's not just an event in history. It's not just the world that's caught up in it. It catches you and your life. Let's dig in. Here's the first one. The resurrection really happened. This is so important because in our day, I think there's this kind of an idea floating around that that Jesus probably lived. I mean, history says at least that much that he probably was a very good man, certainly a very good teacher. Probably deeply inspirational, but just a man. And all the stuff around him was happening at a purely human level. And when he died, people must have missed him deeply. And some of the folks missed him so deeply, and they were grieving so terribly that they began to feel like he was still with them. Do you ever have that feeling? You lose somebody, a life partner, and yet it feels in a spine-tingling way like they're still there. And they began to feel that, that sense of his presence. And around that feeling developed all of these mythological stories that somehow he was alive. Folklore. Because, you know, in the ancient world, people were really naive and stupid. It's like we like to tell ourselves. They were no less endowed with intelligence than our generation. 
Some of them took it seriously. Some of them took it literally, and they shouldn't have. These stories about the resurrection, which were just symbolic, and they got themselves killed because of it. Hmm. I want to explain for just a moment that for the New Testament writers, the resurrection of Jesus was never meant to be understood that way. That's not what they understood. That's not what they wrote, and that's not how they wrote. And a lot rides on this, so hear me out. The Oxford scholar, brilliant man by the name of Richard Bauckham, wrote a fascinating book a few years ago called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he talks about in the ancient world about the process of writing history, which they understood is a very different genre of writing than folklore or mythology. They believed in writing history, to write it seriously. You needed to talk to eyewitnesses who were still alive, who had actually experienced hopefully been part of and present in the events that you're about to write about. History is built on eyewitnesses, on testimony. And ancient historians who are serious about their craft would always appeal to the witnesses. You see it in the Gospels. Let me read to you a a short portion from the beginning of one of the Gospels, from the Gospel of Luke. Notice how seriously he writes about what he puts together. Luke says, chapter 1, verse 1, that many people have undertaken to draw up an account of all the things that have been fulfilled among us, things that were handed down to us by those who were there as first eyewitnesses, who were there as servants of the word and the testimony. And with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I too decided to write this orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things that you are being taught. Listen, whatever else you may think about the Bible, and particularly the Gospels, I hope that you will receive at least this. It was not written as mythology or symbol. The ancient writers, the historians who wrote these books, meant it to be taken seriously. Eyewitnesses played a vital role from the beginning to the end. They're like footnotes. No, we use footnotes in our literature today. If somebody writes a serious academic work, if they want it to be taken seriously, they include a whole lot of information in this apparatus at the bottom of the page as a way of saying the conclusions that we're making up here, you can check them out by going to the sources. And here's all the sources. So university textbooks or peer-reviewed journal articles or, or medical research, there's always footnotes. In light, fluffy, symbolic stories, no footnotes, right? No footnotes in Dr. Seuss. No footnotes in The Hungry Little Caterpillar. No footnotes in any political speech anymore. (laughs) Sorry. You can just say anything. You don't have to prove it. You see this dynamic all over the Gospels, the importance of eyewitness testimony. Here's one example, but it's all over the place. Mark 15, 21, a certain man from Cyrene named Simon the follower, or the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by. They forced him to carry the cross of Jesus. Now, now why that little excursus? The stories about Jesus. This is the, this is the day that he'd been talking about throughout his life. The focus is on the crucifixion. Why this little sort of sideway path down to a, an account of Simon and his sons Rufus and Alexander? Why? Because they were witnesses. They were there. Simon, Alexander, Rufus, you want to check the accuracy of what's been written? Go talk to them. They're still alive. 
They would have been alive when the gospel was written. You see that same dynamic, eyewitness testimony, in another really important part of the gospels. All four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in their accounts of Easter morning, Resurrection Day, include the names of all the eyewitnesses who were there at the tomb, including the ones who were there and heard that first proclamation, he is no longer here, he is risen. And in each case, the first eyewitnesses at the empty tomb are the women. Curious, fascinating, and incredibly important. We don't think about this a lot, but But this would have been jarring in the ancient world because in the ancient world, women were never regarded as capable of giving accurate testimony. They were never allowed to appear in court to give testimony in any case. They were seen as uncertain and untrustworthy. And you see that dynamic at work throughout their society. But listen to this. This is the Gospel of Luke, his account of Resurrection Day. It was Mary Magdalene, and notice the names, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, the other women with them, who told about the resurrection to the apostles. But they, the men, the apostles, didn't believe the women. Not uncommon. Because their words seemed to the men to be like nonsense. Can you believe there was actually a time when men didn't take women seriously? (laughs) The women said, Jesus is risen. And the men said, fake news. (laughs) And it wasn't until some of the men encountered him in person that they began to take it seriously. Now, here's the point. If you were writing a fictional account of the resurrection of Jesus, if you're just writing a story, a symbol, a, a mythology, you would never write it that way, with the testimony of women as first witnesses. Why? Because that would be seen as very shallow evidence. Only a reason to write it that way is if that's the way it was. If if you weren't making it up, if you were writing it accurately, there it is. Whatever else you may think about these ancient accounts in the Gospels, they are not presenting the resurrection as something symbolic. They believed it really happened. And why? Because of the next truth. Because for them, the resurrection changed everything. It was the pivot point of history, still is. All of our calendars pivot there. I know we used to say A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, and B.C. before Christ, and now we have B.C.E. before the common era, and the common era C.E., but we know what's really happened, that that history itself pivots around the life of this one man who died and was raised again. That's the swing point of history. Here's the deeper point. I mean, we all have these wow moments in our lives, right? I remember the first time I saw giraffes and zebras running free on the savannas of Kenya. Just wow. What an amazing thing. We all have those moments, but they come and then they go. And the world and our lives just keep right on going. And our problems keep on going with them. There's life, there's death, and it keeps going. But once there was this man, Jesus, and he came. And he taught like nobody had ever taught. He taught that God is real and God is loving. That God is more loving than the most loving mother or adoring father. 
that God cares. Not a sparrow can fall from its nest, Jesus said, without God knowing and God caring. That's the way he cares for you. He's infinitely good. He's concerned about justice. And there was this amazing movement that was, that was formed around Jesus when he lived. And they did some amazing things. And then Jesus died, and the movement died with him on the spot. Do you really understand this? Christianity didn't begin until after the resurrection. Everything that Jesus was about died with him on Good Friday. And then on Sunday, it was all back on again. I mean, Christianity is, it really is kind of unique among all the faith systems in the world in that it doesn't develop so much gradually over time. One day it didn't exist, the next day it did exist. And people were ready to die for it. And as a matter of historical fact, they did die for it. Jesus himself is so matter of fact about his resurrection. We're told in the Gospels, Matthew 28, Verses 8 and 9. So the women hurried along from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell the disciples, and suddenly Jesus met them. And he said, greetings, as if to say, what did you expect? Didn't I tell you it would be this way? It sounds so matter of fact. Greetings. And they came to him, and they clasped his feet, and notice this word, and they worshipped him. Yesterday, a crucified, failed Messiah. Today, Lord of the universe, and they worship him. And it was his way of servanthood and humility and self-sacrifice and love. uh, Values that weren't thwarted by the cross that, that turned everything around. In fact, it turned the cross into the most recognized symbol in the world today. And it means that you don't live in fear anymore. Isn't that what the cross says? That you don't have to live in defeat anymore. That nations may rise and fall and civilizations may come and go. But the shadow of this one man haunts the human race and has for 2,000 years like no other. He changed everything. And that power, that change wasn't just to be something confined to history or something that happens globally in scale. It leads to the third great truth that it's meant to be deeply personal. Whatever else is going on in your life, we all face this wonder of being born again and, and having our lives come to an end. The biblical writers, they talk about it a lot. This is from the book of, of Hebrews in the New Testament. Says just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. But then he will appear and he'll bring salvation and deliverance and healing and forgiveness to those who are waiting for him. Are you waiting for him? Here's the truth about you. The biggest wow of your existence has yet to come. The most amazing moment of your life will be the moment just after you close your eyes for the last time. We don't talk about it much, but it's good to think about it every once in a while, maybe especially on Easter Sunday. It's an old story. A kid comes to his mom after spending some time in his bedroom and says, Mom, 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 is it really true that we are made from dust and to dust we return? 
Yeah, I guess that's true, isn't it? Why do you ask? He says, I was just looking under my bed, Mom, and somebody is either coming or going down there. <laughs> somebody is always coming or going. The moment will come in your life when you celebrate a new birth, a child, a grandchild. And the moment will come when you celebrate a loss and one day it will be you and your life will be over. And then something amazing will happen. You'll close your eyes and you'll open them again. Wow. And either you will see God and that will be your moment. Or the Bible says you will face eternity without God. But Jesus was always really clear that he didn't want anyone to face that moment alone. So he says, I'll give you grace and love and forgiveness and wherever you, you've messed up, I'll give you this free gift and I'll be part of every moment of your life up until that one last moment. And then when you open your eyes, you'll see me and I'll be with you there forever. That one moment, that, that moment when you open your eyes in glory, you won't just be celebrating Jesus' resurrection. You'll be celebrating your own. And you're absolutely not going to be hosed, John. I want that old liturgy. That Jesus Christ is risen. Everybody says he, he's risen indeed. Uh, I want to change it a little bit this morning. And I'm just going to, in a few minutes, I'm going to have you all say, guess what? Wow! Yeah, with... With conviction, excitement, thoughtfulness. And here's why we're doing this. The death and resurrection of Jesus means that your faults, your failure, all that stuff, your sin is forgiven. Your death, even death itself, is taken care of. It means you have hope, you have purpose, you have meaning, you have a message, you have a destiny. Love has triumphed over hate and light has triumphed over darkness and it means that creation itself is going to be redeemed. You're absolutely right, John. Disease and decay and all of that will be no more. Every loss restored. God himself wiping away tears, easing sorrows, sickness, all gone. Mourning, weeping will be no more. The moment will come and it will surely follow all the moments in our life now because Jesus already did everything that needed to be done. So are you ready, church? Here it is. Jesus Christ is risen. Wow. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate on Easter. And here's the epilogue. Just one more little wow. Because all of this, the... The death, the resurrection, the message, it comes to us not just for us. But it comes with the idea that we can be a conduit of that. Of God's purpose, of his compassion, of hope. We can be a conduit into the world, especially in the lives of those who really need it. People who we often forget. People who we don't marvel at. So maybe there's a person sitting next to you. Or a person sitting around you right now, and you, you often take them for granted. And in this moment, you remember that that is somebody made in the image of God for whom Jesus died 
and for whom he was resurrected. And maybe you want to think about that person. And just right now where you are, you whisper, wow. Wow. (laughs) Now, listen, maybe you're sitting next to a really attractive stranger. And you want to follow up on that a little bit later. But. Yeah. Maybe you've come this morning, though, and you come from a situation where, where hope has left you in some part of your life. Maybe a relationship. Maybe it's with a friend. Maybe your marriage feels like it's dying. Maybe you've been betrayed or there's a problem in your life or with your kids. And somehow the message of hope that feels out there needs to get in here. Some of you are here and you're here for the first time and I'm so glad that you've come. Some of you are here and it's been some time and I'm equally glad that you've come. Let me invite you to come back. Next week we're beginning a teaching series. We're going to call it Vital Signs. And we're we're going to examine what it is that hope looks like in different specific areas of our lives, in relationships, in finances, in, in emotions. I hope you'll come. I hope you'll come back. Only if you're imperfect. No perfect people come. But everybody else is really welcome because we gather realizing that in spite of our imperfections in Christ, anything is possible. I'm going to ask you to bow where you are right now. Allow me to pray with you. God, these are your people sitting here in the stillness right now. They need to know your presence and the power of the resurrected Jesus in their lives. And if this is you, and if you've never committed your life to God before, you can do it right now. You just surrender. You you just tell him, you say, God, I've tried it without you. From now on, I want to do it with you. I admit my faults. I repent. I, I need you to be part of my life. I want you as my leader and my guide, my savior and my friend. God, bring your resurrection power to every man and woman, every young person who needs it. Bring it now. Bring it in Jesus' name and for his sake.